This is Jimmy Dore, uh, one of the giants in podcasting, and you're listening to PF's tape recorder. That's a tape recorders are things that they're old. They don't we don't use them anymore. That's why it's charming. Hello there, I'm PF, this is my tape recorder. We're up to our navels and comedians. We're going to talk to comedian J. Elvis Weinstein about his work on Mystery Science Theater 3000, Cinematic Titanic, Freaks and Geeks, and his stint as head writer of America's Funniest Home Videos. So I won't say that we we never put on a clip that we suspected was staged, but, you know, as a writer, you kind of resent it when it's clear that it's staged. We're also going to talk to J. Elvis Weinstein's good friend, Chris Bliss. They're going to do a series of shows in Minneapolis. They do this once a year where they both perform on stage at the same time. It's a unique show, a big treat for the folks in the Twin Cities. Wish the rest of us could see it. But uh, we'll get some input from Chris Bliss as well. But first, uh, in lieu of fake news, we're going to follow a real developing story with comedian Jeff Tate, a Cincinnati native. He's going to be appearing on the Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson, now reporting live from somewhere else in the newsroom, me. All right, we are speaking now to Jeff Tate in this developing story. Uh, Jeff, how's it going? It's pretty good, man. All pretty right. good. Well, uh, of course, the big news, you're going to be on the Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson uh, Monday night into Tuesday morning. So if you're setting your DVR or your TiVo, it is actually March 20th, but you'll be watching, you know, late Monday night, the 19th. So um, it's exciting. Yeah, it's, it's terribly exciting. Um, so, so, so maybe folks who haven't heard the story, if they weren't listening to Mark Maron's podcast when you uh, unleashed this, uh, walk me through how this happened, how you came to the attention of the Late Late Show folks. I was in Wichita, Kansas, at the end of January, only, uh, what is that, a month and a half ago? About that? Uh, yeah, so a month and a half, six weeks ago, I'm in Wichita, Kansas, and I guess Craig Ferguson did stand-up at a casino uh, near Wichita, and I have to assume he was bored and didn't want to go back to his hotel room, so him and the guy who opens for him, Ted Alexandro, came to oh, I love Ted. the club in Wichita. Yeah, Ted's great. Yeah. Now, like, when they walked in, everybody, every like the owner and every, like everybody that worked at the club, immediately just kind of swamped Craig Ferguson. But I got, I was really excited to see Ted. I yeah. think, you know, he's one of my favorite comics ever. And then, oh yeah, and then, he, and then he just shows up. So I was like, so like I know they're there, but I'm mostly worried about doing a good job just because Ted is there. Like he does, he does the road. I've worked with him before. I was really like, I was like, I gotta do, a, I gotta have a good set. So that Ted doesn't think I got worse. That's all I'm thinking. Because <laughs> it's too it's too absurd to think Craig Ferguson is going to walk into this thing and that anything's going to happen. So I just ignore that, block it out of my head, and decide that I got to have a good set. There's only like 22 people at the show, so I go up and I do the best I do the best I can. And then five days later, the guy who books uh, the Ferguson Television Program calls me. I guess I, guess I got my contact info from the club and uh gave me a tape date and then we worked out a set from there so it was just dumb luck wow. one in a million that's a it's incredible and uh, well you know what this really is though this is what they say uh um luck is where uh preparation meets opportunity 
And uh, I can believe this because I think the last time I saw you was at the end of one of the uh, Pro-Am shows we do in Cincinnati. And for folks outside the area, it's essentially an open mic, but then they have some more of the seasoned guys close the show. Uh, some of the more seasoned guys in town. And Jeff closed the show and totally destroyed. So I can see if you had a, if you had a show like the one you had when I saw you close up the Pro-Am, then uh, no surprise that the Ferguson folks uh, wanted to see you. It's not nice of you to say, man. Um, I, just do, I, just do, I just do my best whenever I can. Now, I'm curious. Um, th- the way your set has developed over the years, uh, it's become a little bit more uh, long-form, although you do have a lot of nice short observations to throw in there as well. Uh, without, you know, without being a spoiler, um, was it difficult kind of working out a five-minute text? And a lot of comics say that you know, doing a TV set is kind of difficult because if you have longer jokes... You know, maybe you're kind of a little skittish about doing them because if one doesn't work, then you start to get rattled. And but I taped on Tuesday, the 28th, maybe or the 27th. I can't. It, right at the end of February, I taped, but it was a the Tuesday of whatever that week was. I taped my set, and everybody told me that the Ferguson show was the best. The, it was like the best room to do stand up in. The crowd was great, super hot. So that everybody told me to time my set out in the club a little under. Don't don't time it out to four and a half in a club because that could very easily turn out to be five minutes in that room. So I did that. I timed it out to four ten, but it was supposed to be four and a half. Then when I'm doing the show, uh, I was way too professional. Like that was uh, my biggest problem. I was going to bed early and sober <laughs> and trying to be like I was just doing that side of bunch. Yeah. I had done it probably ten times a bunch of times a weekend before I, I had been doing, I had done it probably 80 times or something in a month or whatever to the point where it didn't even sound like words anymore. I was over rehearsed and I was too stiff and I was just talking too fast. Cause I had kind of, I just done it so much. I kind of lost the rhythm. The other one or whatever I, I got, I came off. I, I thought it went okay, but I knew I could have done better. And then again, my own dumb luck, the guy comes out and he's like, he's, he's like, everybody loved it. But the crowd is shitty. <laughs> so they were like, the, the executive producer asked me if I could come back the next day and do it again, which has never happened before. They, he just liked the set, but thought, but didn't want to waste it on that, on that crowd, yeah. which again is my own dumb luck. I wasn't doing the best I could. And uh, I, I happened to fall into an audience that was so bad or whatever that they were like, this is bad. And so I, I went back on Wednesday, but I did it on Wednesday the way that I do stand up. I, I try, I tried it their way. Not, you know, it's not their way, but I tried to be super professional. And what would, you know, like, like Seinfeld, like how would Seinfeld do it? Yeah. And then I realized after I did it, I was like, oh, well, Seinfeld does it however, you know, however he does it. I'm not him. So I, I should do it my way. So I went, so on Tuesday night, I, I went out and, uh, just went to a bar with some of my friends and got got drunk. <laughs> I drank until three in the morning or whatever. I woke up the next day, had a bit of a hangover. Then I went to the uh, the car, picked us up to go back to Ferguson the next day. I get back there, I uh, I do uh, I drink two beers in the green room and then I go <laughs> high, and then I just smash it for four and a half minutes. There you go. All right. Um, well, awesome. So we'll we'll be looking forward to that. And, oh, and yeah, I have I have one more thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have one more thing to plug. Um, yeah, I'm gonna be I'm recording an album and a, and filming a DVD at Motor Pub. Oh, that's right. In 
Cincinnati. I'm kind of a, you know, I'm a dirtbag. I like hanging out in bars. I like two dollar <laughs> beers. And, and what's the date on that again? Like me, I feel like we're like we have we have that in common. But rather, you, know, you can you can connect with your crowd. You know, you're they're, they're your people. I hope so, man. When does this come out? This will probably drop on Sunday. Okay, okay. Well, when then, so okay, so when you're hearing it, you can go to Motor Pub's website, motrpub.com, and uh, look look for me April second, third, and fourth. Uh, it's five bucks to get in. That's uh, that's it. Okay. Yeah, I wanna, we'll have I links get more to more than that. It'll be on, it'll be on uh, brown paper tickets. Okay. So you can go there. Okay, we'll have links to all that stuff on the Podbean page for this podcast, so everyone will know where to go. And, uh, well, thanks for taking the time uh, this late at night, Jeff, to, to be on the podcast. No, I appreciate it, man. And, thanks and, for, uh, I mean, you worked me into your schedule. No problem. And, my schedule My schedule is crazy. Uh, yeah, but mine too. Well, we'll uh, I'll see you soon, okay, man? Yes, sir, buddy. Don't be a stranger. Well, uh, I'll try not to be. Thanks, man. <laughs> Bye. All right, see you, buddy. J. Elvis Weinstein started his career just out of high school as a writer and performer for the iconic comedy series Mystery Science Theater 3000. He has also worked on Freaks and Geeks, America's Funniest Home Videos, still tours as a stand-up comic, and has lots of other exciting projects in the works. Here's our conversation with J. Elvis Weinstein. Okay, joining us on PS Tape Recorder, it's Jay Elvis Weinstein. Jay Elvis, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. Um, so you're uh, out there in California, correct? I am indeed. And are you originally from the Twin Cities? Yeah, I grew up in St. Louis Park. Okay. For those who are not in the know, um, walk us through kind of how you ended up with your, your first big gig, of course, uh, Mystery Science Theater. Uh, well, I started doing stand-up uh, there in the Twin Cities when I was uh, 15 years old. And uh, soon after that, Joel Hodgson uh, kind of restarted his stand-up career and also decided to teach a uh, stand-up creativity kind of class. And I, being a fan of his, I took the class and we kind of became friends during that process. And then, you know, we were both stand-ups in the Twin Cities and some of the stand-ups had a writing group that would meet once a week and Joel... uh, joined that uh, eventually and then kind of asked me after the writing group one day if I wanted to come run a puppet in this thing he was doing at this <laughs> local TV station. So uh, how many folks ended up actually being part of the whole writing, performing team at Mr. Was it just the guys that were on camera essentially were also the writers? Uh, well, at, at, at originally at KTMA, which was the local UHF station we started at there, it was, yeah, it was Joel Hodgson, Trace Beaulieu, myself, and then a guy named Kevin Murphy, who ended up replacing me as Servo once I left the show, and a guy named Jim Mallon, who was who worked for the station and actually sort of arranged the whole thing. So I did the first season on Comedy Central, It was although it was called Comedy Channel at that time. Uh, yes, before it merged with Ha. So yeah, I ended up doing like 33 episodes. I did all the local ones and then the first season on uh, on Comedy Channel. And then, uh, what did you do after that? Uh, well, I did some I did some stand up on the road for a couple of years, and then at when I was twenty, I moved out to L.A. to mostly to be a TV writer, and pretty much that's what happened soon after I got here, and for the next you know fifteen plus years. Well, that's cool. And now, uh, one of the gigs, of course, it's uh, uh, stands out on your resume, of course, is uh, Freaks and Geeks. Yeah, that was a fun one. Yeah, how did you uh, get involved with that? 
Uh, well, I knew Paul Feig, who created the show. Uh, he was, in fact, the first person I met in Los Angeles, the first new person I met in Los Angeles when I moved out here. Uh, and he and I were friends. And so that sort of got me the meeting. And uh, Judd Apatow, strangely enough, I was the head writer of uh, America's Funniest Home Videos at that time. And I sort of had been brought in to, to desagatize it. Huh. And uh, so I did a couple of years as that. And Judd Apatow had just had a baby. And he happened to be home on Saturday nights when the show was airing that time. And actually, like, gave me a laundry list of things he liked I did with the show. And he was the only person in show business ever to notice that I did that show. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, so I had I met with those guys and they gave me the job ultimately. Um, speaking of America's Funniest Home Videos, and I, I teach a comedy class and I was talking to my students about this yesterday because you know, a lot of the young people certainly like that look what happened kind of humor. But um, I heard right. an interview with somebody from that program. I can't remember who. And uh, the question was asked, how do you know uh, if it's fake or not, and the explanation was, well, when someone moves the camera out of surprise, it's different when they're actually surprised versus when they're pretending to be surprised. Right. Okay, I, I get that, but I still don't believe anybody on earth paint, uh, videotapes themselves uh, changing a light bulb or painting a bedroom. <laughs> I, just, I just don't buy that. <laughs> no, I agree with that. I mean, you know, there are, there's also, you know, you can, they send in a long tape a lot of the time. So oh, okay. You can, you can contextualize whether or not oh. it was just a mishap or if they were really worried, like, oh. let's just turn the camera on while we're doing home repairs kind of thing. Oh, I, well, I could buy that then because if you're moving your – like we do that. We just painted my daughter's room and um, we took some before and after pictures. Some uh -huh, people might take see. before and after. There you go. All right. So who knows what kind of craziness could have happened. So I won't say that we, we never put on a clip that we suspected was staged. Yeah. But, you know, as a writer, you kind of resent it when it's clear that it's staged, you yeah. know, and so you don't you don't tend to reward it. You know? OK, um, so you ended up over at Freaks and Geeks. And uh, I guess that was bittersweet because critically acclaimed. But um, unfortunately, the audience didn't catch up in time until after it went to DVD. <laughs> you know, it was never that I have to say it was never that bittersweet. It was it was always pretty sweet. You know, we. Uh, we really liked the show that we were doing, and as frustrating as it was that the network didn't really get behind it, it still felt like we were kind of getting away with something in a way. You know? Oh, yeah, and, totally, totally. Because it was so critically revered, you know, we were, after the show, we were all treated within Hollywood as if we had come off a successful show, you know, so. Well, that's true, you know, yeah. You know, so it, 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 so it really... It, it stands out so much more as an opportunity that we had more than a regret, I think, for everyone I know who was involved with it. You know? Well, uh, highly recommended for the folks out there if, if, you're, if you're not a party to it yet. Uh, and it, it actually goes across all ages. It doesn't have to be it grew up in the 80s. It's pretty, it's pretty timeless in a lot of the issues it deals with. Well, and it's just amazing how much of a life that it's had after its very brief run. You oh, know? yeah, I, yeah. And I still have tons of people coming up to me at Cinematic Titanic shows and with box sets to sign. And and, and so many people, you know, went on to do other things. You, you know, James Franco and Busy Phillips. And I think just about everybody in that is doing something uh, cool now. Or, yeah, Seth Rogen. Yeah, uh, oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, Cinematic Titanic. So uh, Joel decided to put the ship back in the water. And uh, how's that been going? Uh, it's been going great. We uh, we started in uh, late 2007, right when the writer's strike was happening. So when Joel came to me and said, hey, uh, we're thinking of doing, it was originally just we thought we'd just do a DVD and see what happened. Um, 
you know, I, I wasn't allowed to do any other work. So I was way oh, more yeah. than up, way more than up for trying, uh, to do it. And Trace and I had worked together a lot, uh, over the years, including on America's Funniest Home Videos. Um, so it was, yeah. So it was kind of like, yeah, let's do it. And then we did it and people responded, you know, with the DVD. And we also, the same week we shot the DVD, we also performed a live show at, uh, Industrial Light and Magic, George Lucas's company, you know, really felt like, hey, this live thing is really kind of the fun part of this, isn't it? And uh, that's really what's developed as we travel around the country doing doing theaters, uh, performing our movie riffing thing to a to a movie in the theater. So, do you prefer the live gig, or would you like to return this to television uh, the way you were doing it back in the day? Um, I, you know, in terms of fun, I absolutely prefer the live gig i mean it's just it's a great you know if we could do a combination of the two that would be the the best thing i think but uh ultimately i think the thing that we as a group do cinematic titanic is doing these shows uh, in front of a live audience so what else do you have going on the rest of the year then uh, uh more cinematic titanic dates i think are in the offing yeah i've got some on each end of it i'm going to uh North and South Carolina this coming weekend, and then I go from there to Minneapolis, and then I come home for a couple of days and go off to Newark to do a few shows. It's Cinematic Titanic days. Okay, and uh, yeah. any any TV work uh, in the works? Uh, no, I'm making a documentary right now. Oh, cool! Uh, I love documentaries. That, yeah, I'm going to Japan next month for a week to shoot on that as well. So, and, I've been, uh, and what's that going to be about? It's about an actor and rock star guy named Michael DeBar. From uh, he he toured with Power Station, Mike, that Michael DeBar. That's the one. Also, the lead singer of Scum of the Earth. Exactly. Yes. All right. Oh, that's so cool. Wow. Yeah. Uh, what's uh, unique about his story? I mean, I know that he was kind of a, a glam guy, got into acting. He's the main villain on MacGyver. And oh, he uh, was, that's right. Uh, yeah. So. So what's what's his deal? Why why a documentary about Michael DeBars? Because uh, it's it's a pretty fascinating life. He was uh, he was born actually a, a, with a noble title, a marquis. His his family had an eight hundred year old title, basically. Oh wow! Um, but his father was a derelict and ultimately a convict. <laughs> oh wow! So, so huh. he his childhood was a combination of being raised by his psychotic mother's stripper friends, and then being thrown into these high-end British public schools, private schools over there, then sort of escaping that into uh, mid-60s London, and he was like into okay. Serve with Love as one of the kids, and then wow. he had a glam band called Silverhead, which was financed by uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber, and wow. he, sang, he sang on demos for Jesus Christ Superstar, and then... Um, he, also, uh, he also co-wrote uh, Obsession, the big hit for Animotion. That's correct. With Holly Knight, and then he also had a hit himself with it. Uh, he and Holly Knight uh, did a version of it, I guess, a couple years later. And um, no, they did it first. They wrote it and recorded it. Oh, they did. I... Oh, okay. Because I think there's someone they released it though after Animotions though. Someone got the bright idea. I'm almost positive or re-released it. Probably re-released it. It was, it was probably a re-release. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. They they initially put it out. That is cool. All right. Well, looking forward to that. And so, yeah, in Japan in April, they're doing a 40th anniversary of Silverhead, the initial oh, glam band. Oh, okay. So I'm going to cover that. Wow. Well, that is so cool. All right. Well, uh, thanks for taking the time to be on the podcast on such short notice. Uh, it's been kind of a crazy week here in Cincinnati, so. 
Well, I hope it. I hope it calms down. Yes, yes, and uh, like I said, hopefully we can get cinematic Titanic uh, here in Cincinnati because um, I'm I'm sure it would do very well here. We'd love to come. We've made it to Cleveland, but we haven't made it to Cincinnati yet. Cool. All right, and continue success to you, Jay Elvis, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Thanks, man. Okay, bye. Bye. Thanks again to Jay Alvis Weinstein for being on the tape recorder, and now it's time to talk to his longtime friend Chris Bliss, juggler, comedian, and staunch supporter of the Bill of Rights. Okay, joining us on PF's tape recorder, it's Chris Bliss. Chris, how you doing? Hey, I'm pretty good, PF. How you doing? Good, good. You know, I was going over some of uh, the interviews we did for City Pages uh, years back, and I forgot what a fascinating career you've had uh, over the years. So has most everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully hopefully we can change that. Um, you started out as a, a juggler. Um, how did you get interested in juggling? What was the impetus behind that? The impetus behind that was that I was in my second year uh, at Northwestern University, and I suddenly realized that... Uh, because I hadn't taken a very active role in planning my own future. My father had planned it very well for me. And at that point, I thought, geez, if I stay on this road, I'm going to wind up in his law firm. What can I possibly do to burn that bridge? So I decided I'd uh, you know, drop out of college to become a juggler and travel with a rock band uh, at that point out in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, it pretty successfully burned that bridge. You know, You go home and you say, Dad, I'm quitting school to become the world's most famous juggler, and, and your parents will give up on you. Okay. So young people out there, take note. Uh, what was the band that you toured with? Well, it was a band called Notary Sojak, and people they played all original music. It was really my grounding as an artist because it was the, it was the whole, I mean, we're talking about like 1972, and this was in okay. Oregon, and the 60s had just gotten to Oregon, and it was very much that whole rock and roll thing of the bands living in a band house. and, and Oh, yeah. And, and living off, you know, half on food stamps, half off what the gigs make. And and uh, everybody's, uh, you know, they get up in the morning, play music all day. It was a beautiful thing. I mean, I really, really enjoyed it. And this is pre-Portlandia days. Uh, yeah, I guess it is. Yeah. But they were also really great musicians. Uh, uh, so, I mean, I got this whole grounding of people that just got up and were creative you know, all day, every day, and it didn't matter that, uh, you know, even creative in like when we got a, a rat infestation at catching the rats without killing them and then putting them in a field across the street. So yeah. it was the total, uh, it was it was the total hippie thing in the best sense of it. And uh, really, it still continues to be kind of a source for me as, uh, uh, as an artist as I go on about just doing it for the love of it. So when did you uh, fold comedy into the juggling act? Well, that was after I toured with uh, uh, I toured with Michael Jackson. I did the Victory Tour in 1984 as his opening act, as a juggling act, and that was like you know big tour, stadium tour, and everything. And oh, yeah. the next year after that, it was nothing but offers to be a, a 12 minute act in Las Vegas. Ah, uh, well. and or 12 to 15 minute. What do they call them? They don't call them variety acts. They call them specialty acts in Las Vegas. Right. And to me, that's not a career. That's like a prison sentence. And at that point, I thought, well, if that's what this road is leading to, I was kind of tired. Juggling gets old after a while anyway. There's only so much you can do in it. And um, I thought, well, people have been telling me I should do comedy for a number of years. 
And so I moved out to Los Angeles uh, about a year and a half after that and uh, decided to just start doing stand-up instead. Okay. And did you have a, a good notion of what you were going to do, or was it really kind of a new thing for you? We really had to start finding your voice and kind of figuring out what kind of comedian you were going to be. I had only one. I had one thing I knew very well. If you're going to make a living as a juggling act, you have to try and fit in whatever it is you do into a hundred different places. So you're constantly jumping through hoops and doing the dog and pony dance, you know. And and my only determination as a comedian was I thought to myself, I am not going to try to find out what the audience thinks is funny, and then work toward that. I'm going to find out what I think is funny and then try to make it funny to the audience. And I guess, do you still do juggling in your regular act or is it more stand-up, just a, a touch of juggling? I know you used to do the, the juggling part as a, a finale for a while, but has that, that gone away or is it still around? Still that because uh, when I get sick of doing it, uh, I'll quit doing it. People like it. I still like it. It's a nice, okay. uh, it's that thing, that Beatles piece that ripped through the internet yeah, yeah. five years ago. So Yeah, we'll have a link to that actually on the uh, Podbean page for folks not in the know. Uh, it was a viral video of Chris that uh, went around the internets and... Uh, uh, became quite popular. And, and the other interesting thing I'd for, almost completely forgotten about was uh, while this thing was going around the internets, uh, a, a fellow by the name of Fat Boy Slim, uh, the uh, AKA Norman Cook of the House Martins, uh, in his later guise as Fat Boy Slim, uh, spotted this and wanted to do a video and invited people to, I guess, see if they could juggle as well as you. You know, I never saw that part of it. Uh, he was such a great guy to work with, though. I got some flack from people uh, going, well, what are you going from the Beatles to Fat Boy Slim? And that guy approaches everybody with so much respect and basically said, this is what we want you to do. And brought me to New York. We cut it a couple different ways and, and then invited me to do it live on The Letterman Show with him. Yeah, as I understand, he's a good egg from, you know, all, all reports I've heard from England. Well, that was the most amazing thing to get because you go in and they work through with the director for, uh, uh, you know, 30, 45 minutes. But he hadn't met the guy who was singing the song before the night before we all went to dinner. Uh, and he hadn't met me. And, uh, you know, and then he asked Paul Schaefer if he could get three gospel singers to do backup. And Paul said, no, 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 I don't think three's enough and got six. And it was so incredible. So we do the rehearsal. And I mean, for me to perform live with the Paul Schaefer band, that, let alone Fat Boy Slim, that was a huge thrill. Oh, and yeah. it came off really well. It was one of the best times I ever had. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, of course, is the uh, Bill of Rights Project. How's that coming along? Oh, that's great. Oh, I, I, uh, I'm glad you asked me about that. Uh, it looks like, for those who don't know, I started a yes. Bill of Rights Monument Project because back in 2006, right around the same time that that, that, that Beatles video was all over the place, because I discovered that there wasn't a single monument of the Bill of Rights anywhere in the United States. And uh, I was tired of how divisive the national conversation was. I was looking for a common ground project. And the right and the left both liked this document. And actually started off as a piece of comedy material, P.F. Really? About, about instead of taking the Ten Commandments down, why don't we put the Bill of Rights up next to it and let people comparison shop? Oh, okay. Because you know, oh, the Bill that. of Rights gives you a great deal. It tells you speak freely, carry a gun, pursue happiness, and then it presumes that you're innocent, and my religion won't give me that kind of deal. <laughs> so, so that was the joke. Then one night I Googled Bill of Rights monuments, and there weren't any. And I thought, well, you know, uh, how hard can this be? And uh, that's always whenever you hear yourself utter that phrase, beware. We have a full ahead go, site and design approved, 44,000 pounds of limestone delivered to our sculptor about a week and a half ago. And I put together 
with an old friend of mine out in Phoenix. This is happening in Arizona at the Arizona State Capitol is going to be the first place to get a Bill of Rights monument. We hope okay. to do this all over the country. Uh, the Bill of Rights comedy concert. Listen to this lineup. Louis Black, Bill Engvall, Bobcat Goldthwaite, Dick Gregory, Kathleen Madigan, Tom Smothers, and Stephen Wright. Wow. Plus Paul Barrera and Fred Tackett from Little Feet. All of those guys are, are volunteering their time to come out. You know, you get a lot of celebrity events, and the celebrities sure. are, are making a bunch of money to do them. You know, which is, I had nothing wrong with that. But in this case, all these guys volunteered to come out and put this show up. Uh, we're looking to raise uh, $200,000, $250,000, and th that'll get us uh, cruising downhill to completing America's first monument of the Bill of Rights, which as a comedian, the Bill of Rights, of course, that's one of the reasons that uh, I get to have so much fun and make a great living. So exactly, it's, uh, it's, it's a perfect project and a dream come true. All right. Well, it sounds like you got your hands full with all kinds of good stuff. Uh, well, I've also got something else that's probably, the, as an artist, the best thing that's ever happened to me. You know what TED Talks are? Yes. Oh, yes. I, I TEDed you the other day. That was the most amazing thing because TED now has these independently organized, and for your listeners who don't know, and they probably do if they're listening to podcasts, TED.com is a fabulous place to see these really brilliant short talks on things from people in a whole range of fields from all over the world. Yeah. Now they've started organizing these independently organized events called TEDx's, and you go do them, and it's sort of like a minor leagues where some talks, maybe less than 10% of them actually get picked up by Big Ted. And my talk uh, that I did in November in Seattle got picked up by Big Ted, and uh, I, I mean, I, I just couldn't believe it. You know, it was just exactly the way the Internet's supposed to work. You know, by the first week of January after it had been up there, it had like 400 views. Then it got picked up by a blog called Brain Pickings, which is a great blog, and went up to like 6,000 views. A lot of people who watch Brain Pickings are people who were from Big Ted. Next thing, it gets picked up by Big Ted and is on their front page. I think it's over 200,000 views now. It's a really good piece of work called Comedy as Translation. Yes, and we will link to that as well on the Podbean page. All right. Well, thanks again uh, for doing the podcast, Chris. Yeah. And uh, like I said, look for the printed piece in City pages, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. All right, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's going to do it. Thanks again to J. Elvis Weinstein, Chris Bliss, and Jeff Tate for being on the show today. Bliss and Weinstein will be performing at the Acme Comedy Club in Minneapolis. That would be Tuesday, March 20th through Saturday, March 24th. Jeff Tate will be on the Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson. That is Monday night into Tuesday, so that would be, what, March 19th into 20th? At 12.30 a.m. following the Late Show with David Letterman. Set your DVRs accordingly if you're not going to stay up that late. Uh, of course, if you go to the Podbean page, pfradio.podbean.com, if you're listening to this podcast any other way than through the Podbean site, uh, you can go to uh, that you can go to pfradio.podbean.com. We'll have all the links for you there. Uh, like PF Tape Recorder on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter at PF66. PF Tape Recorder logo by Dan Coble. Follow him at TigerDactyl on Twitter. Uh, music performed and composed by John Veropoulos and Doug O'Connor with a little help from me. Uh, I think that's about going to do it. So long and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.